This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Lots of other good stuff after that. But I'm going to uh, go ahead and jump in. And I've entitled this lecture, The Apostle Paul and the Problem with Selflessness. And I want to just go ahead and state my concern or my point right up front, right in the beginning. Uh, And I think it's articulated really well in this little book by psychologist, spiritual director, uh, David Benner, called The Gift of Being Yourself, The Sacred Call to Self-Discovery. And if that sounds kind of like mumbo-jumbo nonsense to you. It is a, I do think it's a very helpful book. I do, uh, I do commend it. But he says quite early in the book, he says this, Christian spirituality involves a transformation of the self that occurs only when God and self are both deeply known. Both, therefore, have an important place in Christian spirituality. Yet this has largely been forgotten by the contemporary church. We have focused on knowing God and tended to ignore ourselves. The consequences have been grievous. Marriages betrayed, families destroyed, ministries shipwrecked, and endless number of people damaged. Focusing while God, while failing to know ourselves deeply, may produce an external form of piety, but it will always leave a gap between appearance and reality. So the problem with selflessness talk, I think, in Christian circles is in part we've forgotten the truth uh, that we can only give ourselves away in love and in service. We can give that self away after we've developed that self, after we have a sense of self. But then even after that, I, I don't know if I like this language of having less of a self. I don't think that's exactly the goal, even if what's trying to be articulated in that term isn't always bad. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted to say this up front because I'm, I'm deeply afraid, uh, that as we go through some murky waters of this, this, uh, lecture, I might lose you. And, and not because you're not capable of, of taking in, uh, thoughts of whatever I'm gonna say. I just might not articulate them very well. So I thought I'd just try to do us all a favor and start there. And I just wanna also give us a sense of where we're gonna go, uh, this evening. So where we are going, uh, we're going to start with looking at two contemporary ways of viewing the self. Um, from there, we're going to, I want to question the, this polarity, this common polarity between selfishness or being selfish and selflessness, sort of giving a bit of a, a very abbreviated intellectual history of how this polarity became the norm. From there, I want to look at uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's, it, where often New Testament scholars, if you, if you are all familiar with New Testament scholarship, you'll hear a lot of language of cruciformity uh, and self-emptying talk that really is uh, central in Philippians. And so a lot of people who are pushing kind of this selflessness are, are working out of Philippians. I just want to see if it's there uh, and what extent it's there. 
And then I want to close with what I'm calling tonight uh, the C.S. Lewis stamp of validation. <laughs> so if you think I'm completely out to lunch, I'm just going to tell you to argue with this guy named uh, Clive Staples Lewis and leave me alone. Uh, but to talk about, a sal- to, talk- to kind of move into this, I want to start uh, by talking about babies. Uh, this is where I want to go. This is a very special baby to me. This is the first baby I ever held. Uh, this is just about a 13-year-old picture of Jacob, uh, my son, being held by Sarah uh, in the home we used to live in, in Vancouver. Uh, and I have his permission. There's going to be a number of pictures of him tonight, uh, which are for your delight. But there's a lot of research. There's a lot of literature in the last few years. So you might have heard some of this about this really amazing phenomenon that happens in infants. And I'm going to avoid getting into the weeds of the uh, different ways people go about interpreting this. But from the 1970s, researchers, many of whom uh, are, are kind of in northern Italy, they got the Italians have caught on to this. Um, not, they've given us not just pasta, but they've given us some <laughs> of this uh, insight. Uh, but that infants imitate human faces. And they do so within an hour of birth. Pretty much right away. It's a wild phenomenon. I didn't know this uh, when I stared in the face of my three-day-old son uh, as we were looking at one another. There's a sense uh, long before they ever see their own face or would recognize their face, long before an infant will develop language or kind of know themselves as a self, um... (laughs) Babies are engaged in an act of imitation. They will mimic and imitate the faces they encounter. Human faces, animal faces, uh, uh, humans wearing animal masks. And the the sense that researchers make from this finding, uh, they vary. And uh, um, people interpret this kind of phenomenon in different ways. But I think it undoubtedly implies that infants have an innate propensity for interpersonal connection long before they develop language and the capacity for abstract thinking. Uh, You could think the beginning, the earliest moments of of human development as something of a dance, a call and response between parents uh, or maybe a caregiver. I mean, most often it's a mother. I know the picture here is of the father. It's most often of the mother. But this call and response of mimicry and imitation between the caregiver and the child. The child responds to the parent, who then, in a mix of exhaustion and delight, this is a picture of exhaustion, this is a picture of delight, uh, though you can't see my face, will mimic uh, the baby back to itself. The baby mimics the parents, the parents mimic the baby. It's this circle. And this, of course, continues long past the first hour of a baby's life. And one researcher, a guy named Sean Gallagher, suggests that this imitation in infants isn't empty. It's not some sort of auto-response that has no purpose. He says, in fact, he, he calls this an expressive movement. He says it's a kind of gesture that brings the infant into direct relation with another person. And it starts them on a course of social interaction. So Gallagher believes that these uh, adorable, I think this one's very adorable myself, um, treasured gestures of infants 
uh, aren't empty of meaning. And they're not self-directed either. They're very meaningful. And they're other-directed. They're trying to engage. They are relational. And these infant gestures are towards another. They're for encounter with the other. The parent, the the caregiver, again, most often the mother. Evidently, also as babies age, they show a marked preference for imitating human faces uh, than they do for animal faces or human faces behind a mask. Uh, And there's a lot to say about this. This is sort of... This phenomenon kind of has led in, if you've heard about mirror neurons and all this sort of stuff, this is sort of the origins uh, of sort of that. But it points to the reality that prior to the development of language and abstract thinking, uh, prior to the development of the capacities that we have that we often think of as a prerequisite for being a self. Infants, and therefore all of us, are always already embedded into relationships, before we have abstract thought, before we have language. So instead of seeing an infant as something like a pre-self or a possible self that's just waiting to develop the language and abstract thought so it can navigate its interior world to uncover and create its real, authentic self, which some philosophers and professional ethicists do, uh, infants are already a communicative self. They are embodied, they're little bodies, and they're embedded within a network of relationships. So Susan Grove Eastman, who's a professor of New Testament at Duke, um, who's actually done a lot of really interesting research uh, into this, even though she's a New Testament scholar, uh, she sort of sums up a lot of uh, a lot of this information, a lot of this research. Uh, here, this is from her book, Paul and the Person, Reframing Paul's Anthropology. Um, and she says this, When a baby boy, for example, imitates his mother's smile, he assimilates to her state. He shares with her the experience of the smile and to a degree inhabits her experience. Similarly, when the mother imitates the baby's raised eyebrows, she playfully enters into the baby's world and shares his gestural language. But she is not her child's other self, nor is the child herself. Rather, the experience of being imitated communicates a sort of recognition of oneself as distinctive and worthy of attention. When done in loving playfulness, it causes pleasure. It invites a response, usually by carrying forward the imitative game and the interaction. The interpersonal relationship uh, itself motivates imitation and the cognitive and emotional development that will follow. And here she's quoting another researcher. He says, being imitated seems to establish a powerful and immediate statement of interest, connection, and intentional relation. It is being imitated, which is crucial for intimacy. Uh, and so the idea kind of here is uh, you have to be addressed as a subject really before you can become a subject. Before we speak, our lives are spoken. We're spoken to. Uh, I have another quote from Eastman here, uh, and um, appropriately have another picture of Jacob. This is with Sarah. I mean, he is like as fresh as... uh, I mean, he's like 20 minutes old at this point. He is... 
Newborn infants also smell really nice. He had this amazing, really anyway, smell. Anyway, but she says, Eastman says this, from the very beginning of life, the child is a relationally constituted acting subject, not a discrete, self-aware, and self-directed agent. This is not to say there is no individual self or that the infant begins as a blank, passive slate. With significant exceptions, infants are active participants in the interplay and the play between parent and child, and they arrive on the scene with their own genetic makeup. But they develop a sense of self as well as recognition of other persons through and in the interplay with their parents, not as a prerequisite for such interplay. Rather, the interaction itself is the prerequisite for the sense of self as well as the capacity for thought. So this way of understanding becoming a self or being a self, human development, it emphasizes that the self doesn't exist in isolation from relationships, but it is always already in relationships that in significant and unavoidable ways shape that self, the development of that self. Sometimes people refer to this as a porous self. Like we are always affected by our surroundings and we're always... Um, constituted in relationship with those surroundings. And it's a self that's always embodied, it's a body, and it's always embedded within relationships. Embodied and embedded. And this is a self that is always with. A self with others. And this intersubjective, uh, they they call this intersubjectivity. I think I I skipped that little line up here. Uh, A self that's constituted uh, in relationship. And this way of understanding this phenomenon, which kind of flows downstream from this mimicry that happens uh, in infants, uh, as a way of understanding a self, it stands in rather strong uh, distinction from modern other modern conceptions of being a self. And so I said we're going to start by looking at two ways. That was the first way, this intersubjective way that our sense of self always and must develop within a network of relationships. Uh, the other way, the second way, which I, I'm going to say up front, I don't particularly like. I don't think works very well. Uh, and so it will get no, no new baby photos. Um, uh, it actually, uh, uh, one philosopher calls this uh, a vision, this, this modern self. He calls it a vision of the self that it can only be taught by childless men who have forgotten their childhoods, uh, which is a dig. That is not a compliment. Um, and so, um, oh, I said I had no other pictures of babies. I forgot to put this one up. I just liked this one. Uh, this is awesome, Jacob. Um, but the, uh, the story of this modern self, this, uh, this other way, the second view of the self, has been told many ways and many times, but I just want to use the opportunity to plug one particular telling of it in um, a really excellent book uh, called What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Um, and it's written by a guy named uh, O. Carter Sneed. Uh, and so maybe I'm plugging this particular telling of the story because I get opportunities to say O. Carter Sneed uh, in public many times. Uh, but O. Carter Sneed uh, does a great job of just articulating this modern view of the self. Uh, and he does a very brilliant job of showing why it's inadequate. Um, and O. Carter Sneed, who... Um, is bald and is bearded, 
which is very uh, fashion forward. It is a very, it's a very cool way to present yourself to the world. Uh, if you didn't know that, um, but he is uh, the William P. and Hazel B. White Director of the Day Nicola Center for Ethics, Culture, Ethics and Culture, as well as Professor of Law and Concurrent Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he's also a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, uh, and he is a bioethical advisor to Pope Francis. Uh, it's a really, I, I, do, I really do quite like the book. Uh, and he's primarily concerned with bioethics uh, and American law, so issues pertaining to assisted reproduction, abortion, or end-of-life issues. So if you're at all interested in those things, I really do commend this book. Um, but And he, he interacts with a lot of philosophers. But even though he's talking about law and bioethics and philosophy, um, things that are kind of dry and sterile sometimes, I, I think he's a really wonderful writer. He writes quite poetically with precision and care and often beauty. Uh, so it is it is an enjoyable read, even though it's about kind of boring or seemingly boring subject matters. But Sneed, O. Carter Sneed's, uh, he sees American bioethics and much of American public life as premised upon an incomplete and false view of the human self. This is what we're getting to, the second view. And he, he says this, it's a vision that defines the human being fundamentally as uh, atomized, and solitary. It is an atomized and solitary will. And this view equates human flourishing solely with the capacity to formulate and pursue future plans of one's own invention. So basically, it's a way that what you want is the right way and you make it for yourself. So it's not just one's future, but also one's self. You're going to invent your own self. This is not sort of the unavoidable self with others of the intersubjective take that the northern Italians gave us. But this is a self alone. And so Sneed writes, in its pristine form, it takes the individual, atomized self, to be the fundamental unit of human reality. This modern self is not defined by its attachments or uh, attachments to or embeddedness within networks of relationships. But rather, the modern self is defined by its capacity to choose a future and also an identity, a sense of self, that is discovered by searching deep into one's own inner depths of sentiment. So the idea here that that Sneed is articulating, this modern sense of self, uh, is that one's true self doesn't necessarily, uh, or even it doesn't have to develop through its engagement and its encounters with others. And quite often, actually, this, this, this take on having a self uh, is really created through leaving behind those relational networks, be they families, traditions, social conventions, anything we happen to not like. So we leave those behind and we turn within. We look within with language, with abstract thought to discover ourselves there. So this is not the poorest self that is shaped through interplay and interaction with others. This is a buffered self, a self that needs to be... No one else can access it. No one else affects it. It is us, up to us to define it and find it for ourselves. And this sort of sense is everywhere in our culture. It's all over the place. When you hear someone say, be true to yourself, when you hear of marriage is ending, and I think there's 
cases for marriages to end legitimately or biblically, but when you hear sometimes of irreconcilable differences or conscious uncoupling, this sort of nonsense, this is that idea of I'm, tr- I'm trying to find my true self and I need to leave these other things behind. When people talk about my truth, uh, this is sort of the truth that I find within myself. And I think this sense of self we often see in a lot of like popular level trans discourse where people are not necessarily their bodies or have to have a positive relationship to their bodies, but they have to kind of turn within and find a self that can be at odds with their bodies. And obviously there's a lot more to say about all of those things, but we see this sort of sense of self at play in in our culture, in sometimes exaggerated ways, and sometimes in subtle ways, but it really is everywhere. And Carter rightfully discerns some significant problems with this, with this modern self. And he says that it has forgotten the unavoidability that our existence is embodied and embedded. Like we said, we once were dependent children, and if we live long enough, we will become old. And so we will be dependent again. The modern view of the self only really works when one is unattached from all others, or at least has the possibility of unattaching themselves at any moment. Uh, So when one is independent, when one is cognitively healthy and physically capable. Sneed comments how this modern self privileges certain capacities that no one ever always has. He calls this take uh, on the self a profound forgetfulness of the body, a forgetfulness of the body, because to be in body means to be embodied means many things, but it must include our vulnerability uh, and to be in need of other selves to help us. Uh, and he says that to be a body means we will always exist on a scale of disability, a scale of being in need. So I know I told you I wasn't going to show any pictures for this uh, sense of self, but I lied. And I'm going to show one more of uh, of Jacob. And it goes well with what Sneed says here. He says, the reality of embodied human life is dependence, most obviously given the way human beings come into the world. From the very beginning, they depend on the beneficence and support of others for their very lives. Among mammals, human beings in their infancy and youth have an unusually long period of dependence for basic survival. Infants and babies require help with nutrition, hygiene, and general protection. Of course, this dependence on others for basic needs is not merely a transient feature limited to the beginnings of human life. And there are, of course, those who spend their entire lives in conditions of radical dependency. So being a body... Being embodied, existing on a scale of disability, means that while there might be seasons or even years and decades where we perceive ourselves to be relatively independent, always potentially unattached, cognitively healthy, and physically capable, the truth is we have been, often are, and will inevitably again be vulnerable. And we will be dependent on some manner of a network of relationships to help us. So, and, and Sneed, uh, sort of speaks of these relational networks when they function well, and they don't always function well, but when they function well, he calls them, I just, again, I like this turn of phrase. He calls them networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. 
He says, the, in which people who are willing to make the good of others their own, regardless of what this might offer um, by way of re- recompense. I like this. I like this idea of networks, of giving and receiving, and people who are willing to make others, others good their own as well. Um, so we've looked very briefly, very quickly, but with hope, hopefully in ways we could follow two different ways of thinking uh, about the self, two contemporary ways. One that is we're very interdependent, we're intersubjective. Our sense of self arises through the interplay we have with those around us. We're embodied, we're embedded in these things. And the other is that we have some sense of self that is deep within us, is unaccessible to others, and regardless of what anyone around us says or thinks or does, tradition, culture, society, it is our imperative to look deep inside us and find it. And so if we have to move away from all of those networks of relationships, that's what we have to do. That's what the sense of self demands of us. Um, and, I, and I just think uh, many of us, or at least myself, I really have, I don't know if I've ever explicitly been taught that second way of being a self, but I have caught that. And I think it has real problems. I think it's inadequate to make sense of a life that's embodied and embedded. And it, you know, it works really well for childless men who have forgotten their childhoods. But it doesn't really work well uh, for people who either are themselves dependent, who are sick, who are maybe perhaps children, uh, who are elderly, people who are suffering mentally. Um, so uh, there's some problems with it. And the, the modern self, that, that, that second sense of self that we talked about, it, it needs to be said, it's often profoundly selfish. It's profoundly self-centered, self-referential, self-oriented. Um, and if we re- recall David Benner's comment at the, at the beginning of the lecture about how the church has really not taken knowing ourselves um, seriously recently, it's probably because this is the way we've thought about being a self. Uh, so it's understandable uh, when that is presented uh, as a view of, of being what it means to be a self. It's profoundly selfish. And Christians rightfully have been like, ah, that's not right. That is wrong. And so the response has been uh, selflessness. But I, I, I don't think the polarity of selfish and selflessness uh, is the best one, is the most accurate one. And I don't think it actually helps us make sense of a lot of what we see in the New Testament. And so this is going to move into the next section. And, I mean, in some ways, it's hard, it's, it's hard to sort of wholeheartedly dismiss selflessness. I mean, don't we see a profoundly selfless love in Christ on the cross? And, and the cross, it, while it is central to the Christian story, it's worth saying again, it's, it's not the end of Jesus' story. It's not his final act. It's not his ultimate purpose. And it's actually not the end purpose of his followers either. Whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Uh, That's what Jesus says in in Mark 8.35. And the word life there is psyche, which sort of uh, has turns into the word that's used for a sense of self. But the loss of life or a self is not an end in itself. It's a paradoxical path to gain. So there's something I like and something I don't like about this term. Uh, selfless. Um, and so I think our underlying assumptions make all the difference to the way we understand and use notions of selflessness. 
uh, as it has to be said that at some level and in some ways selflessness isn't an entirely bad thing. Uh, but there are ways in which we conceive of it, that I, I, or that it's often used too, that I don't think are super helpful, uh, and I'm not sure they're entirely Christian. Um, and so what I want to do at this point uh, is, yeah, is, is kind of question this, this polarity between selfishness and selflessness, or what's sometimes called egoism and altruism. Um, and I'm just going to tell um, a little bit of the intellectual story here, which admittedly is a little dry. Uh, so I'm going to put up yet another picture of a sleeping baby. I believe Jacob was just a few days old when this picture was taken. Um, so you can enjoy this and get lost in this if you're getting lost here. But I'm going to um, just outline some broad steps on the road, on, on sort of the road that was taken to modern notions of altruism. Uh, and I'm going to follow the work of a guy named John Barclay, who is a really, really helpful uh, New Testament scholar. And the word altruism, if you haven't heard it before, um, it just means concern for others and to do good to all others for their own sake. To do good for others for their own sake, which of course doesn't sound bad. It's not bad. But there is a particular modern variety of altruism which Barclay uh, is going to call exclusive altruism, where the benefit for the other is taken to exclude any benefit to the self. It's a zero-sum game. He writes, Here the interests of the self and of the other are assumed to be both polarized and competitive. Properly to do good for the other uh, and for their own sake requires action and motivation that is completely disinterested. Right, benefiting the other and not the self. So it's a zero-sum game on the way people think about this sense of doing good for another. Any benefit to the self must reduce the benefit given to the other. So Barclay says exclusive altruism requires a comprehensive commitment to self-sacrifice and a suspicion of motives, goals, or results that include the fulfillment or satisfaction of the self. And, I mean, it gets kind of taken to some pretty ridiculous extremes. There's um, a philosopher who, his name is not as fun to say as O. Carter Sneed, but it is fun to say. His name is Jacques Derrida. And he says, basically, you can never give a gift. It's impossible to give a gift because you always have some vestige of self-interest. And if there's some self-interest or some benefit to yourself, it's not a gift. So he says, we live in a world where gifts are impossible. I... I think he's very, very wrong. Um, uh, but this zero-sum approach uh, to giving and um, to sort of the sharing of the self, kind of the self-other polarity, was, was foreign and probably incomprehensible to much of the ancient world. Uh, where, broadly speaking, to f- the fulfillment of oneself was also included the welfare of others. Uh, and so... When we kind of read ancient texts, including the New Testament, and we have this self-other polarity, uh, it leads to some significant distortions. And again, the story is kind of long, which is why, uh, and winding, which is why I put this picture of Jacob up here. But it possibly starts uh, with a really well-intended guy, Martin Luther, who was a reformer. I mean, it it definitely goes back before him, but a place that we can kind of start telling the story uh, he has these really hilarious um, 
and pretty bitter critiques of the Catholic Church. Uh, he would have so many followers on Twitter. He would be huge. <laughs> he was like made for this. He just can burn, burn people so fast. But he attacked a propensity of many within the Catholic Church to do good only because they would get some heavenly, some heavenly benefit or divine reward. So care or concern for the other, usually the poor, was really just a way of self-seeking. That's what Luther saw going on. Luther believed instead Christians can afford to be disinterested, like not wanting to benefit themselves necessarily, because their interests are in fact secure in Christ. Uh, In his famous work, The Freedom of the Christian, he wrote, The believer lives only for others and not for himself, considering nothing except the needs and advantage of the other. So I, I think there's a sense, and I like, I think Martin Luther's great uh, in many ways. He's, and again, he's very funny. Um, I don't think he's totally wrong here. And he assumed that this, in part because he assumed that this giving of self will always happen within a network of reciprocal relationships. Uh, the life of the state, the life of the church, and the home. But he gives these polemics that are just scorching. And he creates these polarities which kind of lie at the root of this self-other, this exclusive self-other polarity that becomes dominant in the Western philosophical tradition. And this polarity of the self and the other, it becomes deeply entrenched, even as the tradition moves away from the Christian faith. Um, uh, And and again, we have to remember, uh, this isn't true of Luther, but many of the people that I'll just name here are, are often... Uh, childless men who have forgotten their own childhoods as we move into this. And it's you see this in someone like Thomas Hobbes, who is an influential uh, political uh, philosopher. He taught human life at its most basic state is, and these are his words, nasty, brutish, solitary, and short. And so for Hobbes, who is in many ways kind of an architect of modern uh, political theory, uh, the nature of law is to protect us from one another, from ourselves. We're sort of naturally not at peace with one another, but we're antagonistic. Na- we're nasty, we're brutish, but we're solitary. We live apart from one another. And Barclay comments that uh, in this time, we, we start seeing a noticeable emphasis, uh, especially when one is doing good to some other that's there, uh, between disinterest and self-interest. And that moral good is attained only to the extent that the interests of the self are removed from the equation. So a philosopher like Immanuel Kant, uh, he is really concerned with purging our motives of any and all self-interest. He's also a very influential Enlightenment thinker, saying it's everyone's duty to, and this is a quote, to promote according to one's mean, to one's means the happiness of others in need without hoping for anything in return. So in this era, reciprocity, or even the desire to receive any benefit from doing good for other, becomes suspect, becomes not good. And then we have thinkers like John Stuart Mill and uh, Augustus Comte, who also turn Luther's critique of Catholicism just on Christianity. They say, well, it might not be in the Catholic Church anymore, but it's in the Protestant Church. You're just looking for a heavenly uh, reward. And so Comte, in fact, actually coined this term uh, altruism. Uh, He's the one who who invented this term. Uh, And he presents it as the opposite of egoism, the opposite 
of, of, uh, of selfishness. So this sense of doing good to others for their own sake with no regard for oneself, a sense of selflessness, becomes the opposite of selfishness. The remedy for selfishness is selflessness. And the purpose of morality or moral behavior is to do the good to another in an exclusive manner. And it wasn't long before theologians, I'll put it back on Jacob, uh, were speaking in similar manners, and they contrast different types of love, agape and eros. Eros is uh, a word for desire, a desiring love, but it's cast as self-seeking, self-interested, and desire-oriented. And it's put in very strong contrast with the self-emptying, other-oriented, and wholly disinterested ethic of agape. Um, and Barclay uh, says, serving the good of the other requires a radical self-negation, commensurate with the self-humbling and self-emptying of Christ all the way to the cross. Um, now, kind of into this tr- tradition where now to do good to someone means you have to have absolutely no regard for yourself, and if you have any regard for yourself or if there's any benefit for yourself, it kind of doesn't count anymore. And so you need to empty yourself of all those things. And at, in this point enters what I think is a profoundly insightful critique that's limit, um, uh, that comes from uh, this critique of this view of the moral life that comes from certain feminist uh, sensibilities, feminist thinkers. I'm just going to name one. Uh, this is Anglican theologian Sarah Coakley. She is someone who I love to read and is super interesting and who I pretty regularly find uh, frustratingly wrong. Uh, so I would in no way want to sort of, uh, I, I really think her work can be very helpful and also very misleading. So I don't just, I just say that because I just don't want to have some sort of wholesale, uh, commendation. But actually, uh, this book here that her kind of critique is in was the first, it is a special book to me because it was the first a ridiculously overpriced academic book that I bought upon uh, completing my graduate degree that has sat on a shelf, mostly unused uh, since, but, um, but she still has good things to say, and her critique is somewhat twofold. The first is that this sort of ethic, this ethic works for childless men who have forgotten their childhood. Now, she doesn't use that exact phrase. But what could an exclusive one-way giving mean to those who are in desperate need and have absolutely nothing, or who have something taken from them? How is this good news? How is this Christian? To the poor, to the sick, often to women, to children? Are they just supposed to keep giving of themselves when their whole sense of self has been taken away? Uh, she says that this ethic works again for kind of people who are privileged and have stuff to give away. But it's not necessarily an ethic for people who've had everything taken away from them. Um, and, and she says this ethic can have a sense of being self-obliterating or self-negating. Um, and her second point is uh, slightly more subtle of, of this um, way of thinking about, about uh, engaging or, or caring for others. And um, she says it's sort of densely and then sort of less densely. And I'm going to give you both. But I think this, this way is actually very important for Christians. Uh, she says, ironically, the self-distancing that occurs in the negation of the self on behalf of the other can strengthen the buffered self of liberal individualism. So what she's saying, and then she goes on to say, giving for another 
can become a means to evade of being to evade being with them. Giving for them can be this way to actually not be with them. Uh, you can help someone, but simultaneously keep them at arm's length, uh, and you just avoid all the mess uh, that is in their life, and you keep yourself clean from it. It's it's a little offensive, and it's a bit exaggerated, uh, or, or I think we could see through it. But I, I used to work in a neighborhood in Vancouver that was very poor. It was um, very um, Lots of folks with HIV, lots of folks with Hep C, lots of drug users, women in prostitution, just just a troubled place. And Christians would often come uh, and preach and then give out bags of food and whatnot. And one of the guys who lived in the building I worked in, he always called these FU sandwiches. Um, And he said, they would never go home and eat this sandwich. Uh, But it makes them think they've done something good. But they're not actually doing anything for me. It's really about them. I mean, he still ate the sandwich, uh, but he also, you know, shut his ears off to sort of the, the preaching that would happen happen before. And he, I just remember him calling them "fu sandwiches." And I was like, oh. But I, I think um, Coakley's critique offer or uses language that I think Paul would appreciate. That second sentence, uh, not the first one, that was a little dense. Um, giving for another can become a means to evade being with them. Because I think Paul is very concerned about a self being with others. And we see this very much at play in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And again, it's often presented in, in biblical studies as an example, uh, like the prime example, the pristine example of the ethic of selflessness. And we see this famously in the Christ hymn, what's called the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, this amazing amazing passage in Paul that some people think sort of Paul is taking a, a hymn that predated uh, the writing of his letter, so it could be one of the earliest Christian uh, like worship songs, but um, uh, it says he says that, and it kind of picks up um, probably in five, but where the hymn would be, or in six where the hymn would be, I think. But it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Um, and, and right before this, Paul also tells us, uh, he, he, asks, he tells the Philippians to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So there's more things in Paul's letter that really sound, especially kind of living downstream from the selfish, self, selfless polarity, uh, the altruism, uh, uh, egoism polarity, that sound like selflessness. Paul, in earlier in the letter, he uh, he says he, 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 he renunciates his own preferences for their sake. Later in chapter 3, he counts as loss what he had considered gain. 
In chapter 2, he, he talks about being poured out as an offering. And then, um, uh, yeah, and then especially here, to consider others better uh, than themselves. Uh, consider one another better than yourselves. And there's other examples uh, in Philippians we could look at, um, and also in other parts of Paul's letters. But I wonder if uh, when we approach these things um, that Paul calls for, that Paul says, again, with that working modern assumption about an individual self, uh, that then we need to get less of because we don't want to be selfish, I think we can misread and misunderstand uh, a lot of what he says. And as I said before, I think the larger frame in which these injunctions are made is not just one of objection, negation, and emptiness, but it moves towards fulfillment and fullness and life and community. Uh, if you if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. There's gonna there's a paradox here. Uh, and so yes, we're to give of ourselves, and Christ, of course, is that model. He's our paradigm of this. But again, his story doesn't end with emptying. His story ends with receiving. Barclay writes, service, humility, and self-limitations are not ends in themselves, nor self-standing ideals, but means to another end. They are often necessary means towards the flourishing of community and of a reconfigured (coughs) self whose interests are joined with others, whose goal is not emptiness but fullness, not lost but gained. I like that. A reconfigured self that joins, whose interests are joined with another. If we go back uh, to the Christ hymn, it's just often things sort of stop here. The selfishness, selfless sort of stops here with emptying, with humbling, form of a servant. Um, But the second half is just as important as the first. Christ doesn't just empty himself. He's exalted. And then he receives. He's given a name that is above every other name. This is the work that he takes, not as an end in itself, but to reconcile all that is created to God the Father, right? This is his work of cosmic redemption here. Now, a bit uh, a bit later also... Um, oh, actually, I, wait, I think I skipped ahead. Um, no, I didn't, sorry. Um... A bit later in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this, our, our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so we, we await this Savior, not just the model of humility, like what happens with Christ is going to happen to us. Like we will be transformed. We're not going to be given a name that is above uh, every name and be exalted in the same way. But there is a transformation that happens here. There is there is a gain that is coming at the end of this loss. Um, uh, and if you think kind of traditionally and kind of thinking about altruism, the highest ideal, the laying down of one's life for another, uh, complete giving of yourself for the sake of another. Paul speaks about this in Philippians, but when he speaks about it, um, about at least his willingness to risk death uh, for the uh, Philippians, he, he does so because his mortal life isn't the most important thing for him. He rather speaks of it as a gain, and he does it kind of boldly. That's sort of a self-interested way of talking about something. 
but so here again, the selfless, the selfish, selfless polarity breaks down because it's going to be a gain for him, um, uh, and and it will be better for them. There's going to be uh, mutual benefit. So benefit to one party doesn't cancel out benefit to another. Barclay also just he points out how frequently throughout this letter and all of Paul's letter. He has these compounds that have with. The Greek word is sin, S-Y-N. Well, that's not, that's the English transliteration of it. Uh, but there's all this with language or co-language in Paul's letter. There's this these sin compounds. There's always a self with someone. So he calls others his co-workers, his co-soldiers. They jointly offer a sacrifice, uh, poured out as a sacrifice. There's mutual rejoicing. Uh, there's co-sharers in grace. And if we move, there's, you see this also, too, in an interesting way, in probably what is arguably, well, the front runner for, like, the most misquoted or used out of context line in all of Paul, uh, which is, I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me. Here it is re- uh, rendered as uh, him through strength who strengthens me. Uh, it's, a, it's a verse about living in scarcity and living in abundance. What's interesting to me is that if Paul has a as an ethic that's only about self-emptying and self-giving only, um, he, he says here he doesn't actually have a hard time living with abundance. Like, he can live well when he has a lot. Like, it's not like an ethical or moral problem for him. Uh, and it's not some sort of embarrassing contradiction to the gospel. And just uh, after this, in 419... Uh, he presents uh, the Philippians' gift to him as an offering to God. And he speaks of God as committed, and he said about them, about God is committed to fill their every need according to his wealth and glory in Christ Jesus. So the goal, again, is not just self-emptying, not just less of a self, but having been emptied uh, on his behalf so that they would be filled again. There's shared benefit in this community. There's fellowship, there's solidarity. And there's something I think really, I, I just want to go back to this, because I think this sort of is, is really, I think is key um, in, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others uh, better than oneself. Um, like for this, like this is just such an interesting thing, because I think we hear this as as individuals. But like, um, if I count Esther better, Esther's concerns more important than my own, and she counts mine better than me, there's like a paradox going on here that we're both serving one another, we're both caring for one another, where the selfishness, selfless kind of polarity doesn't work. And it's it's there's uh, it's um, it's similar to language in Galatians. In Galatians five, it's often translated as "through love serve one another." But literally, Paul says, become slaves of one another, which is really interesting because if I become your slave and you become my slave, slavery is done. Like you can't be mutually slaves. Like it's, it's this sort of paradoxical, paradoxical way where we work together in, in, in community where there's things are, where goodness is shared, uh, um, where benefit is a mutual reality in community. So Barclay says the result will be a community of humility and honor, both in serving and being served, where it is fine to be thought important, 
so long as you are also according importance to others. So in this community, our concerns are not obliterated, abandoned, or looked down on. And our concerns matter. That's a part of who we are as a self. But within the community, they are transformed. Um, so there is, there's a lot more to say about a self. Uh, what it means to be a self, how to develop a self. But I, I don't think the, the polarity, again, uh, and the, the common use of selflessness is, is a helpful way to make sense of Paul. Paul isn't for selfishness. And he's not exactly for selflessness. I think he would fall in the self-withness. It sort of mirrors in some way. I'm not saying Paul anticipated northern Italian research into infant neurobiological development. But maybe he did. Um, but that the self is always with others. I think that's very, very important. And I want to state again about the importance uh, about about self through, again, just reading that quote from David Benner. He says, Christian spirituality involves a transformation of the self. That happens when the self is with others in the community and with Christ. And it occurs only when God and self are both deeply known. Both, therefore, have an important place in Christian spirituality. Yet this has been largely forgotten by the contemporary church. We have focused on knowing God intended to ignore ourselves. The consequences have been grievous. Marriages betrayed, families destroyed, ministries shipwrecked, an endless number of people damaged. Focusing on God while failing to know ourselves deeply may produce an external form of piety, but will always leave a gap between appearance and reality. So I'm going to close by reading a little bit from the beginning of The Weight of Glory, which... um, Ben pointed me towards earlier in the week. This is my, uh, what did I call this? C.S. Lewis stamp of approval. Um, but this is how he starts. I'll just read a little bit. He said, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness, maybe selflessness. But if you ask almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive and this is more uh, of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels and in Paul, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So he definitely takes that in a 
you know, in other directions too. And but he just says things so well. Um, yeah, you should check him out. He's an up and coming. <laughs> up and write it down. Yeah. But I'll stop there. I've talked for I think longer than I hope to. But um, yeah, we're happy to have any conversation. You're also happy to to split. Um, uh, but yeah, anything we've talked about, I'd just be curious to hear people's experience or thoughts with sort of the. Um, ethic or sort of like blanket um, advice of just being selfless. Um, yeah, or any pushback, I'm also... But, yeah, so the floor is open if anything comes to anyone's mind. Go for it, yes. Okay, okay. Um, You know, who can know the heart? Who can know the heart of man? How is it possible to even hope to do something for someone else and be assured that it's a pure motivation just for the other person? I mean, how, how do you? I I I love to. You know, know positive reasons uh, and impulses for helping other people. But I know my selfishness is there in that there's oftentimes manipulation or, you know, some form of um, gaslighting that goes along with it. So in terms of the kind of the, the theoretical view of this, uh, how, how can you be? Um, or is it just something you, wanna, you aspire to? So. Can you be totally selfless? Yeah, I can be totally selfless. Yeah, I don't think you should. Totally for the other person. Yeah, I definitely don't think you should. I don't think it's a possibility. But I don't think that keeps us from doing good things. Um, yeah, no, I I think... It shouldn't be a goal. Just selflessness is too... seems too shallow a goal without a holistic view of why God created the universe. Yeah. Yeah, did you or did you want to say something to that? I just saw your hand up. I, I just thought there's gotta be a difference between um really sinful self motivation when we do something like I'm doing this to manipulate you mm-hmm. and an actual good and godly self motivation, which is it'll give me joy to serve you. Mm-hmm. Like those are two totally different things. The, the second is uh, might be called self-oriented, but it's it's not it's it's not that's not it's not a problem. I mean, we're supposed to be people that love to bless others, and so it's a totally natural and godly thing to experience pleasure when we're generous, right? Like to, to actually enjoy giving a gift to somebody else because we love them. That, that, to me, is the big distinction between that, which, in, in a way, is self-serving. It's not just self-serving. <laughs> it's, it, but but it is, you, you, should, you should expect to experience joy. If you're a godly person, you should expect to experience joy when you give to somebody else. But, that's, but there's a big difference between that and, and something that's truly, really sinfully motivated. Like I, I, hmm. you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this gift so that they feel miserable or, or feel inadequate or, feel, or whatever it is, you know. Um, 
Yeah, it's self-benefiting, like which is not bad. Like I think, I think there's a re- like there's a design for that. There's a goodness to that. Like I think, um, yeah, just in the same way that Christ emptied himself, he did so, evidently for the motivation of joy. Uh, like so, there's. Yeah. I won't. Yeah, yeah. Nope. I got nothing else to say. Yeah. yeah. Did you? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, it's very freeing to me to think that my motives are always going to be mixed. Mm -hmm. And if I get really obsessed with trying to have pure motives, then I'm being precisely selfish. (laughs) I'm I'm undermining whatever. Yeah, that's really good. I really like that. You know, unselfish motivation there is there by trying to make sure it's it's only that, you know. So, yeah, and I think often, uh, like, the, whatever it is, compassion, generosity, pity, even, like, they can motivate us to acts of uh, selflessness. Um, like, the, long, the longer we're in whatever relationship or work of giving... Like that work becomes a mirror back on us that reveals how much of a mixed bag we are. Like, oh, even even though I was compelled, you know, to give in this way, now I see my selfishness that was there, or I see this edge of, gosh, I really wanted a pat on the back. Like that's what I wanted, and so. Yeah, but I think that's that's like an opportunity then for a deepening of self, actually, mm-hmm. um, rather than some sort of like, oh, you you shouldn't <laughs> you do the wrong thing. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. John Piper talks about something called Christian hedonism, which is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything is done for the glory of God, which is like a motive, but it it brings, has a benefit for all who yeah. seek God's glory, including God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he says, um, oh, it's been a while since I've... God is God is most glorified when I'm most satisfied in Him. Yes, yeah, 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 and that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about. I don't know about the always nature of it, but I do think like that as as something to move towards. I think is really like God does long for us to be satisfied <laughs> and um, is is pleased with that. Like I don't think. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, and there. But I, I do sometimes think there's. Oh, I need a second to think about how I'm going to say this. So, give me. Someone else can say something, or uh, anyone else can respond to that. I just don't want to say something that I actually. I'm like, oh, that's probably not what I think. Um, but. Yeah, but I think I, I just want. I think sometimes that can be presented in a way that uh, implicitly tells people, like, "Oh, if you're satisfied with some good thing, 
in the world that God has given you, it's wrong. Like, you actually need to not be satisfied in that thing because you've inherently made it an idol. I don't think John Piper is necessarily saying this. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just know there's a way of hearing or teaching that any sort of joy in created things, the good, like, sort of matching God's uh, appraisal of the creation uh, by being like, yeah, this is really good. That, so, that that somehow is sub-Christian. And so then you need to sort of move into a time of prayer or where I think sometimes just, yeah, the, the act of delighting in the, the goodness of a created thing, whether it's something God has made or whether it is something that, you know, someone in God's image has sort of made and been inspired by him. I think the act of gratitude is 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 very powerful but doesn't require you to only to sort of be like, yeah, this is a really great fresh tomato, but let's like move this aside and like sing a song like um <laughs> like I think God is really pleased when we're pleased with things that <coughs> please him. And so I I, so I really don't, I'm not trying to like pick on Piper or like, I, I don't actually disagree with it. I just think there's a way that the phrase can function that can over-spiritualize in ways that I don't, I, I don't actually think Piper intends. Um, uh, um, and yeah, so, but I also, I'm not also terribly... I'm not also terribly familiar with everything he says, but or everything he has said, but I think pulling in ideas of like existential, emotional, spiritual satisfaction, I think we could use a little more of that. So I do appreciate that he pulls like you like wants those categories in our life with God because there is a way like what David the David Benner quote. Um, so sometimes it's just like knowledge of God, knowledge of God which can just be kind of here and abstract and, I mean, the head and heart, you know, distance. And so I do appreciate that about what he's trying to do there. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or, you know. Um. That conversation just makes me think as well about like, receiving ourselves as a gift Ooh. from God. Um, yeah. And even in a godly way, being able to Yeah, I like that because to be a steward is sort of like there's a responsibility of of caring for the goodness of something you've been yeah something you've been given like built into that. I like that. And 
Yeah, earlier this week in our me- in a meeting talking about something else, Sarah, t- Sarah talked. Or you, what you were just saying made me think about like the difference about being poured out as opposed to being wrung out. And there's a way that like you can get wrung out. Like a lot of Christians desiring to serve and to care and to and, like give of themselves get wrung out, and they don't have a sense of stewardship. They're like, well, the land can all you know like. It, we're just maximizing it, and who cares how depleted the soil? I'm working with a agricultural metaphor, but like, yeah, who cares about how depleted the land gets, or what we have to do to get it? Like, that's the point, and it's like, oh, that just like crushes a, it rings, rings, it rings out a person as opposed to like the idea of pouring out, and um, yeah, I like that that language of stewardship. Yeah, Jen. Speaking to the idea of the difference between agape and eros. I was always sold an idea of agape as a very disinterested love, where God loves because he is love, and it really doesn't have anything to do with you as an individual. It's just the thing that he does because that's how he functions. And what that turned into in my life was God loves me because he has to, but he doesn't, if you would ask me, I would tell you, I don't think he likes me. Yeah. And I think there's something where we actually really need that interest from the other as well. Yes. That, no, I, I think it's really true. Like I, uh, we had, um, a student here for a while who talked about how this person's uh, mother would often say to them, uh, I love you, but I don't like you. And like, you know, the damage, like not really, I mean, as a small child, probably not being aware of how hurtful that was, but then you know, all these years later talking about it here. And yeah, it it does get wrapped up in that perception of God, but it's like, um, anyway, I just, I appreciated what, what you said and and just even bringing that distinction in. And it, um, it was a new, it, it was a new thought and remains a somewhat uncomfortable thought for me still to think about God liking me. Like I, I, I've been in uh, the air I've breathed enough is like God is love. He loves everybody. It's just so like broad and whatever. It's like yeah, it covers everybody. I guess I'm in there too. But like, but does he like? Like, does he like? Yeah. Anyway, but then working into that, there's that. There's a lot of like work about figuring out like, well, there is sin in me, uh, and I also am a sinner. And anyway, parsing all of that stuff um, that God doesn't like or or love, but wants to heal and, you know, redeem. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I just, yeah, go on. Where are you going to? Well, it's like one of the most beautiful phrases in the shack is where, like, God keeps talking about this person or that person and says about each one, I'm especially fond of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's what we actually do need. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I wanted, anyway... Yeah, I, there's something beautiful to me about this image, this this phenomenon that I would really like to learn more about and explore more about about um, this way, this intersubjective research on on infant development, and it's in the gaze, like like the particular looking at you, the particular looking back, where a self is developed, and um, 
Yeah, there's something about that that's so intimate <laughs> and becoming so attuned because uh, it's sort of pre, pre-verbal and, or, or, you know, um, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah. Yeah, about, anyway, about what can be communicated through a gaze, like a, like a very intimate, personal look of love and affection, like, um, so, and then, I'm just talking, yeah. The word that comes to mind is delight. Yeah. Because he's God, he actually sees the uniqueness of each person in a way that we can't. You may think we're nothing, like, oh yeah, the same, or I'm not, there's, nothing, there's nothing unique about me. <laughs> like, but yeah. it takes, it takes God who is actually has this infinite intimate knowledge of us to actually delight in you particularly. Yeah. As opposed to just like, he really likes humanity. Mm-hmm. You can believe that and come away with like no concept of God's regard for you. Uh, yeah, and there's a, there's a way that like, um, Sorry, now I'm just... But there, there's a way that, like, um, I guess just listening to people and listening to myself or <laughs> talking, listening to myself talk to my counselor or my, like, spiritual director, I'm like, man, the things that I'm, like, I fixate on and I think are, like, most interesting uh, or most, most worth my attention are my problems, my sin, my... And it just does feel like, um, if nothing else, like, the... Cr- if Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross, finally, it's like God is sort of like, look, that's actually the stuff that's not the most interesting about you. There's much more about you that's vastly more interesting. And I've gone to pretty extreme lengths to sort of remove that or and empower you to step out of that so you can kind of step in, you know, put on the new self and walk in newness of life and, like, get over that. And um, that is a... Not a straightforward thing, <laughs> but I do. I, I feel like I've said. I know I've said that in tutorials sometimes with like people. Like it's just like this is just not the most interesting thing about you. Like you've been living in this house for a number of weeks now. You keep talking about this problem. There's much more interesting things about you. Not that we don't have to deal with it or that it's not. It doesn't matter. But um, let's just put it in a bigger, bigger perspective. Yeah. Yeah, Ben. Where's the where's the passage in Galatians that talks about being, about being slaves to one another? Five thirteen. It's one of the only verses that I like. I know where it is. <laughs> <It's so impressive. laughs> yeah. Um, Don't ask me anymore. <laughs> no. I, don't. Yeah. Um, I love the idea. What you said about if you have two people being slaves to one another, slavery is undone. It's you're 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 serving the other with love, and they are serving you with love, and so there's no, it's like you're both being slaves, but neither of you are masters. Yeah, there's no master in the equation, which is just except the Lord. Yeah. Um, But Hmm. I love I love what that implies, though, for um, and totally like torpedoes this idea that I only should I only should bless you if I get nothing in return because. And actually, implicit in that is a, is a uh, requirement that I receive from you. Mm-hmm. It's not just I have to be a slave to you and give to you, but I need to honor your call yeah. to, to be hospitable to me. Yeah. I, need to receive, I need to receive your hospitality 
not just give it and feel like I'm the benefactor. Yeah. You want to do. Um, but I love that. This is just like, it, it means that we actually, it's not just like, that's fine, it's okay if every once in a while you let somebody bless you. But yeah. You should just be, but no, this, you, you're called to that. Yeah. Right? The, yeah. There was like a, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, the, uh, t- so Tim Keller passed away today, which is a tremendous loss. Um, and one of, oddly, I mean, I haven't, I've read a number of his stuff, I've listened, but one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was just like one of those, he, I, I'm pretty positive he like broke script for a minute and just probably was speaking out of his own life, but was saying like, people that are only, only ever serve become unbearable. Uh, in old age, because like you, you no longer, like the thing that has identified you or been your identity, always serving others. All, like no one needs to help me. Like you become insufferable to be around, uh, because you don't know how to receive. And he was like, if you don't learn how to receive now, you are going to be such a burden. You think you're helping your kids or whoever now by doing all this stuff for them, but you'll become such a burden to those around you as you're dying. Um, uh, or in your old age, and I just was like, "All right, <laughs> yeah." But there's, yeah, I mean, there is, um, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, Esther. That Sarah and I were talking about this recently. Um, but in the in the upper room, you know, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, mm-hmm. um, which is like. The picture that he gives us, you know, service mm-hmm. goes on to explain what he's done really clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, should you not also wash one another's feet? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that uh, has struck me about that as well is to your point about receiving is that, you know, Peter says, like, Lord, you should, you'll never yeah. wash my feet. <laughs> um, and... Um, like to me that like that passage of Jesus washing the feet like there's things in here that just like the order of it like though he exists in the form of God he did not um, count a qual or, or, or take on the form of the servant like he though or though he exists in the form of God it's like he gets up from the table uh, he takes on the form of the firm uh, or he empties himself like he takes off his robe takes on the form of the servant puts on another robe and like he humbles himself and like washes it. There's just these crazy parallels 
to me in the movement that happens in this that we see sort of pre-cross in... Anyway, I just... Anyway, I, I like that passage. Um, yeah, does anyone have anything else they want to say? Yeah, Robert? Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's the book, but Barclay talks about in the, in the book about like a gift or giving and receiving. Yeah. What well, he said is, we used to say like it's unconditional, but he's saying it's unconditioned. Yes. Unconditioned no. Yes. It requires response. Like yeah. Jesus always and God always required a, a proper response. Like you can't just, <laughs> you can't take it, but you need to respond. And also, I think to to give and to to like asking for appropriate responses is also just we being human. Mm-hmm. Like I, I did something for you. I did something good for you. And you know, I did something godly for you. And uh, to enjoy your response, like say thank you, Thanksgiving, or whatever. That's that's just a we're being human, being you know created in God's image. Mm-hmm. So if you if you completely like pour out yourself and the feel nothing about others' response, and that's dehumanizing, that's saying that you're not human, or you're like sociopathic, I think that's what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They have no, they have no, they have something in their nerve just doesn't function, so they, they have no feeling of love or kindness or anything. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's actually proper to, like um, Ben said, you, you you do what God said, you know, uh, as we said, washing feet, and Jesus also, you know, then you should watch with yourself. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. to have a proper response is, is godly, and it's also how God created us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite things that John Barclay, the New Testament scholar, says is, he says, like, Jesus, or um, the, the God of Paul's gospel is the opposite of Santa Claus. Uh, and he says, like... Um, uh, Santa makes a list and checks it twice to find out who's naughty or nice. And Paul is like, look, whoever will receive it, like good or bad, those who don't deserve this gift will receive it. You're like, um, as the, anyone who will receive. But then what I think is interesting is he, he points out that like everyone writes Santa a letter about what they want. Uh, but after Christmas, no one writes him a thank you note or it's like, hey, how are you doing? That must have been a really busy season for you. Like, uh, it's all before. There's nothing after. And he was like, yeah, exactly. Like, like God, like wants, uh, wants a response. Like, it wants engagement, wants relationship that's like premised on, on, on gratitude. Um, and that that changes the person and then changes how other people see who around them is deserving of a gift? Well, if you know, if I've been, if I've received this gift, not only a good thing that I've done, maybe I should spread it or or be generous or kind to those who are around me who maybe aren't deserving either, and kind of creates these communities that cut across distinctions and um, and all these sort of like systems of worth and stuff. But anyway, I, I'm just really glad because. Uh, I don't really like Santa Claus. <laughs> I also don't believe in him. <laughs> um, but parents should make all their kids break thank you notes to Santa. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you. All. Unless anyone else, someone else, say thank you all for listening and sticking around and. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.